This is a podcast by The Straits Times. So I am here at a grocery store looking at some products labeled fish small thread fin pack. The question is, are they really thread fin? Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyze the beats of the changing environment from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. Happy New Year, David. Happy New Year, Audrey. How were the Chinese New Year festivities for you? It was good. So did you eat any shark fin during this period? No, no, I make it a point not to eat shark fin. But, you know, this is a special time and I saw lots of families in restaurants gathering, enjoying the company, enjoying good food and tucking away and eating all that shark fin. Yes, uh, I think some people here still really like their shark fin, but I'm like you, I make it a point not to take shark fin. But actually, according to a new study by a National University of Singapore research team, we might very well have unknowingly eaten not just shark fin, but bry products from other shark and ray species threatened with extinction. It is February 17, just days after the Chinese New Year celebrations. Today, we have with us researchers Christina Choi and Chu Min Yi, who were part of a study that found that many shark and ray products here, such as dried fish or salted fish, are actually not as they seem. The scientists uncover the true identity of these products through a process called DNA barcoding, which essentially means matching DNA found in the sample to a global database. So Mini, I understand that you were the one going around buying these items and also the one who did the genetic analyses. So tell us what you found. In total, we obtained 192 samples from retailers in Singapore and uh, 179 of them were sharks and rays and there were 13 bony fishes. So these retailers that we collected all around Singapore were from traditional Chinese medicine halls, supermarkets, small grocery shops, dry goods shops, fishery ports, seafood restaurants and hawker centres or food centres. About 50% of all our samples were from supermarket chain outlets with about 25% of them found in dry goods stores. So I think based on what we found, what's concerning was that 58% of the samples are threatened species. So threatened species are species that are listed as critically endangered, endangered or vulnerable. And I think what's even more worrying is that we found 33 samples that were listed as critically endangered. And 39% of the samples were listed on the CITES Appendix 2. So the most commonly found species was the giant devil ray, which is quite a large ray that swims around in uh, large oceans. And there were 24 samples of them. And we've also found some interesting species such as the scalloped hammerhead, the great hammerhead shark, and the giant guitar fish and the bottlenose wedgefish. And all of these four species are critically endangered and also listed on CITES Appendix 2. So what were your thoughts on the findings? Christina, you've studied the trade for a while now. Did the results surprise you? So many of the samples collected here were species threatened of extinction, but this is not too surprising because many of the shark and ray species, they have declining populations in the wild. Threatened manta rays, hammerheads and silky sharks that were detected in many of the processed and cooked products here were also species experiencing sharp declines in their numbers in another study conducted by international research team. But what is surprising to me is products containing threatened species were as easy to purchase as other seafood products that contained less threatened species with healthier populations. And some of these species that were found in our study were also listed in CITES Appendix 2, which means that products need official permits for import and export. 
Well, it may be possible that they have been imported into the country legally or before trade regulations are in place, but the lack of precise species-level trade data makes it challenging to determine the actual volumes that are being traded for each threatened species. And this challenge is compounded by the fact that a large proportion of products are generally labelled as striped fish or salted fish or being mislabeled as ikan kurau, which is the Malay name for the Indian thread fin. And the shark and ray trade is notorious for mislabeling foodstuff and products such as fillets as well as dried food are problematic because many of the distinguishing features of this species have been lost in the process. And consumers are therefore likely buying products without being aware of the threat statuses of these sharks and rays. Labelling has direct impacts on the consumer's health and beliefs, especially in the context of Singapore's multicultural and multi-religious society. So basically, it means that even though you have consumers who purposely avoid eating shark fin, you might actually have them consuming all these products from these animals in other kinds of forms. Yes, that's right. So the use of buying such products in Singapore seems to be quite alarming, as you've clearly expressed. So do you think it would make a difference in people's consumption habits or patterns, you know, if there is clearer labels for what types of fish are in these products? So in 2017, I think there was a report showing that Singapore was the largest importer of shark's fin after Hong Kong and Malaysia. So do you really think that um, better labeling and better public education will make a difference here to reduce the consumption or stop the consumption of products from fish uh, that are critically endangered or on the way to being critically endangered? So yes, clearer product labels containing information such as species and catch locations will make a difference because it supports consumers' ability to identify and purchase sustainable and responsible seafood. There has been recent public interest in more sustainable food sources and a more eco-conscious populace in Singapore. But having said that, we do need to motivate more consumers to translate their preferences for clearer product labels into a willingness to pay for the price premiums if the sellers try to pass on the cost burden of accurate labelling to them, and empowered, well-informed consumers on the associated negative environmental impacts would be in a better position to use their purchasing power to create demand for sustainable seafood. And although some studies have estimated that the domestic consumption of shark's fins remain low or even possibly declined over the years due to increasing consumer awareness, the fact that Singapore is a significant trader where large volumes of shark and ray products are passing through means that having clearer product labels will actually achieve broad compliance from other exporting nations and accelerate progress towards sustainable seafood. So maybe we could go into the reason why the trade in shark and ray species is so heavily discussed. And especially in Asian countries, you know, it can even be controversial because people here still do like their shark fin. So yes, right. I feel that these animals are so heavily discussed since the 1990s is because of the cruelty in feeding. However, sharks are actually facing many other threats, of which overfishing presents the greatest threat to them. You know, shark and ray fishing has actually expanded globally for several decades now, as populations of other favourite food fish depleted and become subjected to more stringent fisheries regulations. And these sharks and rays, they are harvested for their meat and fins, although most of them are caught incidentally in other fisheries as well. And then they are slow-growing and they have low fecundity, so their low reproductive output is clearly no match for the intense fishing pressure that they are currently under. As a result, the global abundance of oceanic sharks and rays has declined by 71% since 1970s, and more shark and ray species are also increasingly included in the CITES appendixes over the years. 
And today, right now, like out of the 1,186 species, 316 of them are assessed to be threatened in the IUCN rate list. Sorry, Christina, can I just interrupt you here? I mean, you mentioned fecundity. So can you just explain to us what does that mean, actually? So low fecundity means that their litter size for the sharks and rays is generally very small and they might not reproduce as frequent as like, let's say, a farmed animal. And so like, for example, in the giant guitar fish, it's as low as four pups and it varies maybe at max 24 pups. And so essentially, the fishermen are catching fishes and the sharks and rays faster than they can reproduce in the wild. All right, so I'll continue. So in addition, the international demand for the shark and ray meat actually doubled since the 1990s and thus the trade in all these products are gaining increasing attention right now. And therefore, shifting fisheries, trade and demand for all these species from overexploitation towards sustainability is one of the key strategies to alter the current trajectory of shark and ray decline. So Christina, how do you think mislabeling of such products contributes to the decline of increasingly endangered or critically endangered shark and ray species? So I think because mislabeling gives the wrong impression that the products contain non-threatened bony fishes, but in fact contain shark and ray species with declining populations in the wild or whose population statuses are just unknown. And so the sales of these at-risk species are being obscured, even if they are protected under existing trade regulations. And that poses difficulties in tracing many of the shark and ray products back to their origins, as well as monitoring the actual volume that have been harvested for trade. And this may then embolden fisheries to capture more protected species with the low risk of being detected, resulting in more chances of the illegally harvested wild populations being laundered into the markets as legal products and ultimately impeding measures to conserve these endangered species. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. So can you just tell us a bit more about the technology that you guys use for this study? I mean, DNA barcoding. I mean, this is, is this a new technology or how can mislabeling be better prevented? So DNA barcoding isn't exactly a very new strategy. So people have been using DNA barcoding for quite a while. The main problem is that DNA barcoding relies on a public database. So for every piece of DNA that is ever obtained by researchers all around the world, it's usually stored into a database that is also accessible by the public and other researchers. So the quality of the database is pretty much dependent on the quality of the information that you put into the database. So initially, there wasn't sufficient data to nearly identify all of the animal species and there are many different sections of DNA. So most researchers will be working on one section of DNA while some researchers will be working on another section of DNA. And the two different information usually will not link up together. So now it was only in the 2000s that more targeted sequencing of a standardized gene in animal that led to the build-up of sequences in the repository, which allow most animal species to be identified with their DNA barcodes. The biochemical technologies associated with DNA isolation and sequencing have also improved by leaps and bounds. So highly processed and even cooked products, like the samples that we've collected, can be sequenced and identified. So one major shortfall remains is that the bulky lab equipment and time needed to complete the DNA isolation and sequencing. And this too is improving. Like the testing of COVID-19 when it was first discovered early last year, it took more than a day to obtain the results of the test. Now the most vigorous Q PCR test takes just two to three hours. 
Many labs now, including ours at NUS, are developing faster DNA barcoding methods, which are also portable for deployment in the field, even at supermarkets and at custom checkpoints. We have a suitcase-sized portable lab system that can sequence and identify numerous species within about six hours. Most of the time, it's just the system running in the background. So you can collect more samples and have many more samples running in the background. So the ability for custom checkpoints to run a large volume of samples and leave it there and have it run into the background would make it a lot more faster to be able to check what's coming into Singapore at the checkpoints. Okay, so that's very interesting. But before we go into detail about, you know, the implications of this technology for use in weeding out all these products, maybe we can just explain to our listeners a bit more about this DNA barcoding process. So if I understand correctly, it's kind of like a a database that the police use, you know, right, to match fingerprints found at the crime scene to a criminal. Like you won't be able to match it unless the criminal has already been fingerprinted before. So is that a correct analogy to understand this? Yes. So broadly speaking, DNA barcoding is the approach that uses a DNA sequence of a targeted genetic marker to identify a known species. So for this method to work, the DNA sequence must match a previously obtained sequence in the large public database that everybody has entered their sequences in. So yeah, it's in a way, it's similar to uh, when police do crime work and with fingerprints and all that. So if you were to look at each sample, if each product in your supermarket right now, if you were to just look at it and think of them as having their own fingerprints, when you run those sequences, you get the DNA, you extract it from the samples in each of these supermarket products. They all have a unique fingerprint and that fingerprint, you have to match it to this large public database. So with the fingerprint that you have, then if you if you find a match, then you will be able to find out what species that particular product contains. Okay, so we have talked about the science of you know DNA barcoding and what it means for the products that we have on our market. But what do you think Singapore is doing to prevent this or to help consumers make better choices? Okay, so the National Parks Board and Parks they have a Center for Wildlife Forensics. And uh, they've also developed molecular protocols such as DNA barcoding technology for the identification of marine CITES listed species, including the wedgefish, the guitarfish, the mako shark, treasure and silky sharks and sea cucumbers. So using this technology, they've been able to ascertain the identity of fresh, cooked and dried fillets and fins. So uh, this bit, DNA barcoding technology has been an important tool to enhance our, their enforcement measures. So surveillance is being carried out regularly at the fishery ports to ensure that there's no sale of CITES-listed species without permits. And all samples from the import consignments declared as shark fin will also be collected and they'll be identified through analysis. So using this approach, I've heard that they've managed to enforce against a trader selling wedge fish that was imported without permits. So I think NPARCS has been doing a fairly good job so far of being able to develop their molecular protocols using DNA barcoding technology to be able to streamline the process of identifying species that are coming in at our import points in Singapore. Thank you, Minnie and Christina, for joining us today and telling us about the fishery business surrounding mislabeled shark and ray products in Singapore. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg.
You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.